Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast where we feature entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm Hasha Montasser, co-founder of the Lighthouse. From its humble beginnings 12 years ago, the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature has grown immensely and now showcases 250 sessions from workshops, panel discussions to poetry readings. This year, the festival will feature nearly 200 authors and speakers and will be held from the 4th to the 9th of February. We sat down with its founder, Isabel Abulhul, who is also the CEO of the LitFest Foundation, to talk about her drive to spread her infectious love of literature and her journey from Cambridge to Dubai. Now, Isabel arrived in Dubai over 50 years ago. She grew up in Cambridge in the UK, reading the English classics and other gems from the Western canon. In fact, she read anything she could get her hands on. My mother said I could read at three. Whether I could, I can't remember. But I do remember the journeys I took through amazing books that helped me understand the world around me from quite a young age. So, for example, Heidi, the classic Heidi, she was an orphan on a Swiss mountain, went to live with her grandfather. Uh, There was a goat herd, they kept goats. I knew what it felt like to live in that little hut on the Swiss Alp. I knew what it was like to come clambering down with goats and everything else. So we had a very sort of... um, wonderful um, uh, childhood surrounded by people from all over the world and everything else. I met my future husband, who's from Dubai, from the Emirates, when he was studying in Cambridge. Um, And then um, the rest is history. You know, I followed my heart. I've never regretted it. And we have five wonderful children. I have six grandsons now. So um, Dubai and the UAE... Uh, is a place where dreams can come true, as I'm sure all of us who've travelled from near and far appreciate. When you met your husband and decided to move here, was there any hesitation? I mean, someone you grew up in Cambridge, presumably you didn't know Dubai or the Emirates much? Oh, the hardly Gulf? anyone knew Dubai. Okay. Uh, that was, that was right. the case. No one had heard of Dubai in those days. The Emirates had not yet been born. But one of my mother's uh, dear friends, he had actually... Uh, travelled to Dubai from India and landed on Dubai Creek in a seaplane in 1936. So he gave me a copy that he had signed by the author. It was Wilfred Thesiger's book, Arabian Sands. And uh, he said, you know, um, uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, you, you You will really enjoy the experience of being there. Climbing out of a plane directly onto sand, which is where the landing zones were in 1968, Isabel fell in love with the city and its people. But she felt there was something missing in the city she was now calling home. There was not a bookshop that I recognised as such. And I felt, particularly for children, what a shame it was that there were no uh, bookshops of the kind that I'd grown up with and the access to, to children's books. Because if you want someone to be a reader, the best time to start is when they're babies and to help them fall in love with books. And the best par- people to do it are parents. Um, it's not good enough that you wait till they go to school and then a stranger, who is a teacher, um, is introducing them to books. That should happen right at the beginning of their, their lives in a warm and loving environment. So I taught at Dubai Infant School uh, before we had children of our own. And then we uh, were involved in uh, co-founding the 
Itihad Private School, which is still going strong, which was a school that was aimed to provide a bilingual education in both Arabic and English uh, of best practices at that time. And that was in 1974-75. The late Sheikh Rashid donated the land and the money to build the first phase. And it's gone on. It has another uh, branch now in Jumeirah. Onwards from there, Isabel co-founded one of Dubai's first bookstores and one that is still very much alive today, Magrudi's. You may not know this, but Magrudi's actually started out as an educational toy shop as a way to bridge that gap from various educational toys to, of course, books. I had no experience of business. So from the very beginning, for me, we had to have books as part of that mix. So it had children's books and it had um, educational uh, study aids. So everything that I felt it was important that children had access to, from um, Mamod, it was a company that made toy steam engines, because, again, that's a very scientific thing. Um, we had Lego, we had Galt, we had all of the uh, good educational toys at that time. And it opened on the what used to be called the Dubai Sharjah Road, exactly opposite the runway of the airport, which was on the other side of the road. It was a single track, so two-way two traffic, one going to Sharjah, one coming to Dubai, and you could drive off uh, in, on either side onto the sand and park outside. So that's where we started life, and it was very exciting and interesting. And as it, you know, I just had to learn very fast how to run a business and how to import things and uh, how to how to, you know, understand about trends. And we didn't have this sort of instant access that we have today. People find it quite strange um, that I've lived through all of that, you know, all the changes in terms of technology. You know, when you look at books, bookstores today or even sort of any shops, I mean, there's an enormous amount of curation. Lots of it comes from information we find on the internet. So how did you go about making a selection? How did you get your information for what trends to follow, you know, which children's books to select, you know, coffee table books, etc. How, how did you go about doing that? Okay, so I'd always been an avid reader and I continued that. So every time we went back to UK, um, I would fill suitcases with books and bring them back. But when I first came out, before we had children, I bought 15 enormous boxes full of books from, from my home, including my own children's books. So I looked in all of the books. I looked at the address uh, of the publishers, uh, I typed uh, letters with carbon copies uh, and posted them off to all of the publishers um, and said, please send your catalogues. Uh, I did the same with toy, toy companies. I phoned the uh, business uh, section of the British Embassy and the American Embassy and I asked them for all the details of, you know, trademarks. So, you know, it was the normal ones. I'd say, please send me the details wrote to them all and asked them to send catalogues. So they sent the catalogues. So I managed all on my own for quite some time. I would type out all the orders and um, make the selections. And then I thought, how am I going to get... By that time, I, I was dealing with probably about 50 different companies, uh, mainly UK-based. Uh, so then I phoned the British Embassy and said, do you have anything, you know, a name or a company that, that collates sh uh, shipping, freight? They said, yes, Constantine. They gave me this name of a, a firm called Constantine. So I wrote to them and said, I'm placing all these orders. Would you be able to uh, accept delivery and then ship it by, uh, you know, sea. by sea uh, to Dubai? And they said, absolutely. So they put it all into a container 
and it arrived, and there was no container terminal. So there were no facilities to actually handle the return of the container. So I, I have a vague memory that it was sold to someone on a building site and they used it for storing materials. So even the container got used. So that was, and then I would place two or three sea shipments a year, uh, trying to fill up containers of different things. But the, it was instantly apparent. So, you know, people would come in to buy toys and children's books and they said, well, we want mother and baby books. What about cookbooks? What about fiction? And so I was, you know, scrabbling, trying to order more and more um, books. We had greetings cards. We had toys. We started to do stationery. And so if I see a selection, I'm, I'm a sort of Miss Average. So I can immediately sort of say, well, that's what's going to be popular. Mm. And nine times out of ten it would be so and your batting rate was high in terms of yes, uh, selecting yes, items that yes, sold yeah. and I could choose very fast so I have done for many many years I did complete selection of everything whether it was books, toys, stationery that is the enjoyable bit that is the really that enjoyable bit I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm well aware of that process uh, because we do it at the lighthouse and it's the most fun the it rest is. of it the is curation, not the curation <laughs> of what you put together what you will have and what you won't have and I had very distinct ideas and what I understood quite early on is you can't be all things to all people and you shouldn't be yeah. you should have you should have a character you know your your shop should um, sort of reflect your vision and your views on life so obviously we would never want to stock anything that was harmful I really am not a keen per, sort of um, uh, person in terms of battery operated toys um, I wanted things that that children would grow with and that they would have you know wonderful experiences with but but just to kind of go back to that point because I'm fascinated by it that you said that so you were able to choose the items that you felt. I mean, you kind of knew the average. You were an avid reader. Yeah. And so most likely your own personal taste was sort of on the highbrow side. You're coming into a city where, you know, the experts are new, if any, not many. Yeah. You don't know the local population. So your taste doesn't necessarily match with the taste of your potential audience that's going what to buy I the books. What I like. No, right. you're right. So how did you manage that? Because Yeah, you've got to, you've got to slightly separate the two. So I, my favourite genre is uh, literary fiction. Okay? I wouldn't say that, particularly then, that was the bestsellers, but I also uh, love Agatha Christie and, and so popular is because they're much more relaxing. You know, reading literary fiction can be... Um, a huge ask of any reader, and it, it, it sort of it, it yeah, damages you and adds to you. Yeah, Kafka's not the most relaxing. Yes, of yeah. Authors. But I knew <laughs> that we had to have both, and so so that's what we did. And then you know things like Mother and Baby. Um, I love self help books. You know the the latest one that I'm really um, can't wait to read is Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Ericsson, a, a Swedish writer, and. Um, I love the title. So that's another thing. Okay, with books, if you're a book buyer, which I was, um, titles are hugely important, covers and titles. So when you go into any bookshop or, you know, you're traveling and you want to pick up a book, the first thing you see is the cover 100%. and the title. Okay, I mean, you don't need to really market John Grisham or Harlan Coben or, you know, Dan Brown. Everyone knows their names. And so if you look at books in the publishing industry, the more famous the writer is the larger their uh, name, name appears so that's what appears at the top for unknown writers or for books that are about um, subjects it's always going to be the title um, and an arresting cover and so there was a trend 
back then of, you know, any books for women, fiction books, would be pink or for girls. And I really can't stand that. Because, you know, let's be quite honest, even today, boys are not happy picking up pink books, you know, that they feel are a little bit girly. Um, and we shouldn't expect them to. You know, we, there's, there's so much we can do. And I don't like this distinction between there's books for girls and books for boys. Right. Yeah. Okay, so, so Maruiz got off to a good start. Um, and then what happened? So you, you ran this business for a while. So um, in the midst of all of this, um, I, uh, you know, we expanded what we sold. Um, uh, we sort of um, would listen, very much listen to customer uh, feedback because they are the most knowledgeable you know customers know more than you will ever know and you do have to be prepared to be there and listen to that the other thing was that we were the first investor in terms of uh, retail in technology so we invested in nielsen's uh, book bank data so that was global access to all books in print in the english language anywhere in the world so that really gave us an edge in terms of being able to tap into technology so a customer would never go away really empty-handed because we could get the book at that stage. That was long before the internet. I'm talking about the late 80s, early 90s. We also invested in um, a specialist bookshop software, um, which was called Bestseller, which was then bought out by Amazon when they were making inroads into UK. Clever move. Um, and that also allowed us then to spot trends, to keep uh, control on stocks and all of those things. Um, so the business expanded. Um, we built up a you know, great uh, loyalty uh, base of loyal customers. A lot of children grew up with Magrudis and come back now with their children um, to enjoy the same thing. And the mix still for children, the mix of toys and books is uh, dynamite because... Um, children might not know they like books, but they do know they like toys. So if you put those two products together, um, they can gravitate, and that's what happened. And uh, it meant that there was no pressure on them to feel they were somewhere that was just about learning and, and studious. Um, I've always felt that you need, to make, you need to make any bookshop an inviting place. Isabel is a key member of the UEE and even the region's literary fraternity, having spearheaded not just one or two, but three organizations over the years. After Magrudi's, she went on to found Jabber Publishing, which has published over 120 books for children in Arabic and English, and then in 2008, she co-founded the Emirates Airlines Festival of Literature. More on that and what Isabel sees as the future of books after this short break. Hello, this is Hashem Montasser, and if you know me, you already know that I'm a big fan of reading in all its forms and often gift my friends books. It should be no surprise that we feature many books at the Lighthouse covering the world of art, design, and food. Recent additions to our collections include the acclaimed cookbook Palestine on a Plate by Jodi Kala and How to Spot a Hipster by Christopher Sassar. So definitely stop by on your next visit to D3 and pick up your favorite gifting item from the Lighthouse in Building 6. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Isabel Abulhul, CEO of the LitFest Foundation. Before the break, we spoke to Isabel about her journey, founding Magrudis and trying to meet the country's and region's needs in education and reading. 
In 2008, she helped set up the Emirates Airlines Festival of Literature, which has become a key stop in the region's literary scene, with over 150 writers, authors and speakers. Every year we say we're going to have less next year, but it just doesn't happen. More and more people from around the world get in touch with us and say, we need to come, we want to come. Um, and we, it's an 18-month process, so we're already working quite deeply on 2021. Um, we need that time to think about which writers fit together, what the theme's going to be. So it's a very, the programming is very complex. And the theme for this year is tomorrow. So tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so tomorrow, if you think about Shahrazad, Arabian Nights, um, she had to tell a story every night for her tomorrow to come. Um, so that was one of the thoughts about it. Uh, but it's also that we never get to tomorrow. We all think about tomorrow. You know, I'm thinking about what am I going to do tomorrow, but I'm never going to get to tomorrow because it will be today by the time I've got there. So the whole concept of yesterday, today and tomorrow is a fascinating one. Um, and if you talk about a tomorrow, you can't have a tomorrow without, without a yesterday or without a today. So thinking about literature um, and where does it fit in that concept of time? And do you still manage, you're just talking about all these authors, you still manage to find time to read? I read at least two books a week. A week? A week. Can you walk us through your, I'm sure many, many of us are envious, including myself. How do you manage to bake that into your schedule? I mean, how do you do um, that with a frenetic schedule? I read very fast, okay. first of all. I did a, when I was at college, I did a rapid Russian reading course, which allows me to read. I don't enjoy reading fast. Not if I'm enjoying a book. I sometimes want to relish it. And so, but sometimes we need to read fast. So to be able to read fast, I mean, I can, you know, really ramp up the uh, And you find speed. time in the evening or is it early morning when you wake up? I mean, how do you work at your uh, anytime, routine? Anytime, anytime, okay. anytime. So I sort of have at least three books, um, uh, you know, upstairs, downstairs in, in the house. And I just um, make it, it's important for me. I rarely, rarely ever watch TV for a start. Um I read, as I said to you, I read the Times in a digital format daily, cover to cover, um, and I find fascinating articles that then actually lead me to look up those books, you know, so surrounded by idiots. I love that. Great, I can't wait. Time, I, I can't say. wait to... Um, I, I have to admit, I feel, I feel that most days, but anyway. <laughs> but I think, Not at the lighthouse, but no, I'm no, but this is The thing is that the fact of the title, we all can identify with Absolutely. it in some way Absolutely. or another, you know, and it's an awful thing to say and it makes me laugh because why do I like the title? Do I sometimes feel like that? Uh, and then I feel guilty. Um, but it's apparently he identifies four personality types and how you manage that. So it's a business psychology book. And those kind of books, health books, psychology, mindfulness, there has been a huge uptake in publishing those kind of books away from fiction. Um, but I read fiction as well. So, you know, I um, read American Marriage by Tayari Jones, who's coming to the festival and it won the Women's uh, Prize. Incredible book and so different to other writers. This is what I love when writers do something completely different. And um, I think it's Barack Obama's, it was his pick of 2019. Yes, and now one of the things you, you, have, we, you and I had talked about is that you're, you're already in, 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 you're actually in progress in terms of... 2021. Um, 2021, but also you're looking for the festival not to be sort of a few-day thing, 
but rather a series of activities that extends yes. all year. Tell us a little bit about what's the uh, rationale behind this and how are you going about doing okay, this? Okay, so the in 2013, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Vice President, um, Prime Minister and Ruler of Dubai, um, issued a decree um, establishing the Emirates Literature Foundation and I was very honoured to be uh, one of the trustees and I'm also the CEO. Um, so the idea of the foundation is that we can involve ourselves in year-round projects to um, enrich the literary community, to uh, help Emirati writers, to help, to help writers in general, um, and to look at as many ways as possible of spreading the love of words and reading. So, you know, we had the reading year, which was, which was amazing. And so we have been, for several years, um, having year-round activities. So one of the uh, things we do is every month um, we arrange for an author to go into Dubai prisons, so the, uh, to the women's prison and the men's prison, and they give creative writing workshops. So as a result of this two-year project, um, the inmates... So last November we had two writers, one international and one living here, who, went, who became writers in residence. So they spent a week in one in the male prison, one in the ladies' prison. And they, um, with the inmates and the uh, workshops, the uh, inmates have written essays under the theme of tomorrow. Wow. Uh, so that will be published as a book. It will be given to prison libraries across uh, the UAE, but also uh, the author from the United Kingdom will take back books to donate to prisons across the United Kingdom. And the uh, title of this book of essays uh, is Tomorrow I Will Fly. And the festival and foundation's aim has always been to be as accessible as possible. So if someone we have, we generally for main sessions as well as simultaneous translation between languages. We have um, uh, Arabic language interpretation for those who can't hear, so they can be part of the discussion, part of the conversation, and ask questions. Um, we also have increased the number of free sessions we have so that, so that uh, finance is not going to stop people coming. Um, and then the year-round events, we are doing more open house events at our offices in Shindiga. Um, we were thinking about having some events here, I hope, at the Lighthouse, so, uh, where we have authors coming along and talking about their books um, to an invited audience. Um, we are holding, as part of the festival, it's a foundation event, but we have a literary festival directors conference going on during the festival and we've got 31 literary festival directors from around the world coming to Dubai to discuss common um, common challenges yeah. and also for them to get to know some of our wonderful Emirati writers and writers resident here so they can invite them and, and, and we can export them. So for the other countries which may not have their own Isabels um, here in the Middle East, what can they do? I mean, do you think this is something the government has to work on or something that has to happen organically from personal initiatives or combination? All the festivals that I've ever um, come across, literary festivals, are generally started by someone who has a passion. And I think that seems to me to be the best model. I don't think you can have a sort of a, this is a, we'll build this, you know. Uh, and I do think independence is really important. And there are festivals that are, I mean, if you look at literary festivals, there's food literary festivals, so they've got food writers, poetry festivals. 
uh, children's festivals, crime writers' festivals, history festivals, all based on uh, writers. And I think this is a fantastic, you know, so there are offshoots of so many different kind of things. And um, we just need to grab the opportunities and get more people excited about writers and books and maybe writing their own stories as well. That's been a huge growth at the festival year on year. One of the surprisingly refreshing things Isabel mentioned is how she loves technology and learned early on to adapt to it. This is different than many book traditionalists who often have mixed feelings about the impact of technology on companies like Amazon on book retailing. I think, first of all, you have to accept it. You have to accept that technology is here to stay. It's not going away. You know, we all are uh, sort of um, glued to our mobile phones and sort of getting updates all the time and so on and so forth. I read my daily subscription of the time on my phone generally or iPad. It's a subscription-based thing. Um, and it's updated through the day. It's amazing. So I don't want to go back to a, um, a physical newspaper. I do when I'm in the United Kingdom. I love to go out and buy the Sunday papers and, you know, the magazines. And it's because I can remember doing that. It's a ritual. But apart from that, I tend to access all my news in, in writing. Um, I'm not visual. I, I, I like to read it. But I love physical books as well. And the one thing I would say is that no electronic device is ever going to substitute for physical picture books for children. You know, they need to have a book in their hand, not an electronic device. I, I think that's right. I subscribe to that theory as well. It's obviously a little bit of a challenge sometimes because now with those, as you mentioned, iPads and other devices and so on, so there has to be a, a, a way to to kind of give them, enable them to love books, uh, but not get too distracted with other technologies. Yes, and you need to make time. Um, it's all about what's important. So if you believe that books are important, if you want to pass on your love of reading to the next generation, be prepared to give up time. In the same way, if you want your children to swim, be prepared to get in the swimming pool. You've got to be prepared to spend time. And it is always about children look at you. If you are an avid reader... They see that as a role model in the same way that if you like biking, if you like swimming, all of those are, I, I believe, essential. Children should learn to swim. And all my children could swim by the age of two um, because we live in, you know, we've got the sea and things like that. And also biking. I'm from Cambridge, so bi biking is an important, an important skill set for me. So you think it's, so in the kind of obviously big discussion, which we can debate endlessly about nurture versus nature, you do believe that sort of learning by doing, essentially. So you think that you grew up loving books in many ways because you saw your parents reading from a young age. Exactly. I think it's all about nurture. I think any you give me any child and I will turn them into a reader, I can assure you. I can assure you. Um, it's all by... You might get many listeners, by the way, sending you emails <laughs> now and sending their children. Yeah, yeah. it is about... Um, it is about spending time every day reading together. You know, if you imagine a baby in your arms and it's warm, it's inviting, and they pick up, you have a little pile of books and they choose which book they want and you might have read it 500 times, but hey, it doesn't matter. And you go through that book with them and they know what's coming next. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And most of my grandchildren, you know, they will bring me six or seven books um, at a time and they will jump up and they want me to read them again and again and again and it happens through the day I also think bedtime stories is an extremely important part of their routine in the way that they brush their teeth 
they should always have a bedtime story because it helps you unwind. Um, and if they're older, even if they can read, I would continue to read with chapter stories, whether it's Harry Potter or Roald Dahl. Read those books, share it together, because then you've got something to discuss. You know, where are those discussions around books you love and why you're reading it? And, you know, you also are teaching your children how to debate. You know, we need to be able to agree to disagree. You know, I don't want anyone growing up, you know, I read all of the sort of the... I suppose the seminal books of my uh, teenage years um, that formed so many of my beliefs. So 1984 by George Orwell, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway, um, Brighton Rock and the Power of the Glory by Graham Greene, the, you know, War and Peace, The Idiot, the, the great Russian writers, John Steinbeck. So I just read and read and read through my teenage years and... Um, I would jump from one to the next and have that amazing journey with these incredible writers. So classics are very, very important. So how do we uh, accommodate for that here in the sense that many of us, including myself, I grew up in Egypt and I was in German school. So I read, like you, most of the Western canon. But then there was also a very interesting literature emerging from my part of the world, whether it's in Egypt or the rest of the Middle East. Much of it is in Arabic. Some of it is translated. We have a lot of children now, including um, children of, of Arab parents that don't read in Arabic or, or find it more difficult. Mm. So they are missing out on the Nagib Mahfouz of the world. Yes. Um, the Western canon is obviously a little bit more accessible. But in our part of the world, like many other parts of the world, it should be mixed. You should be, you should be subjected to many different ways of thinking, reading, listening and languages. How do you accommodate for that? Right, so we talk about mother tongue. Yes, as well. I believe that for children, it's important that they are read to in their mother tongue. Mm. And so that means if they're Arabic-speaking children, um, they need to be read to with Arabic stories. And there are more and more good children's books um, uh, for children in Arabic. You know, it's a growing, a big, it's a very fast-growing sector. Um, a lot of children go to private schools and the private schools, the majority of them, their curricula will be uh, more towards English language. So if everything is taught in English language, apart from Arabic and Islamic studies, the balance of what they're doing in their daily, you know, seven hours at school is going to be in another language. That's difficult. 100%. And remember also, Arabic and Islamic studies they're learning the language, mm. maybe they're learning the Quran, but the literature, for example, is not taught in many of the schools. No, it isn't. It so isn't. They, they do not get to know about those authors who are also wonderful, who have been all throughout the Middle East. Yeah, that is that for me is a big challenge. It's a big challenge that I think is, uh, you know, many, many parents um, across the Arab world are facing that, that children choose Correct. to read in English Correct. because um, they find it easier. They find, they find what they want. And many of the children's books, successful children's books, will go on to be films so they can share it in another, in another medium. And again, that's quite a nice... Um, you know, I, again, I'm a great believer in crossover that you can enjoy the same story in different medium. Uh, the fastest-growing category in publishing at the moment is audiobooks. And if we could get more audiobooks into Arabic... That would be helpful because it's much more relaxing to listen to a book than it is to read a book if you are not, you know, immersed in the Arabic language in terms of the grammar and literature. 
within the English language, you can do anything. There are no rules that can't be broken by writers for children or adults or anything. Arabic, I think, has it, it's slightly constrained by the structure of the language and the way that we say one thing, but you will write another. You know, we have formal fussa Arabic, and then we have dialects. So the Egyptian dialect is different to here. Um, and I know Egypt in particular has moved towards allowing dialect to be written, but it is not universal. And then I feel children, it doesn't sound uh, gentle on their ear when they're hearing a formal language. It would be like reading babies Shakespeare. And I'm not sure that they would, um, you know, really relish it in the way that they relish their everyday language. One final question for you. So knowing that you are, I'm sure, looking at the next thing, What's there on the horizon? What's in the what's lying ahead? Anything you can share with us? Uh, I've got a couple of projects which are about to kick off. Um, I just I do would love to write my own book um, at some stage. Like in like a memoir type book or something fiction? No, no, no. I mean, I would love to write some children's books. And in fact, I've written them, but I've not finished them. And then the book that I started writing is uh, strangely because it's not an area that I would know is a crime crime fiction. Oh, how novel. interesting. And it's completely not what I would um, have thought, but it just started. And so I've, okay. I've got, you know, I have to have time to do that. And until I'm ready, uh, you know, it is up to me to make that time in the way it is for all of us, whether we're reading or writing, you have to make that time. Whether it ever gets to anything, there would be great satisfaction in getting and doing it. I think it's sometimes... It's like when you go, you know, you aim to travel, half of the joy or more is the planning. And that's what I think about writing even. It's not even the finished product or having it published. It's actually having that journey as a writer and learning about things on the way. As I mentioned, the Emirates Airlines Festival of Literature will run from the 4th to the 9th of February. I recommend you check it out. Even if you can't make it, you should follow them on Instagram at Emirates Lit Fest to stay updated on their news and events. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show, and do share it with your friends. All of our episodes are available for free in your favorite podcast player and at our website, lighthouse.ee slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. See you then. <laughs>